Hi, I'm Angela East and welcome to another edition of the East Meets West podcast. This podcast is proudly focused on Western Australia, the engine room of the Australian economy. From the CEOs, company directors, brokers, entrepreneurs, and everyone in between, East Meets West is a deep dive into what makes the greatest state on earth tick. One of the key issues facing Western Australia's miners right now is the adoption of automation and artificial intelligence as they look to streamline operations and generate efficiencies, particularly in the face of rising costs across the industry. Drones are one of the solutions that are becoming more common across the mining landscape for things like stockpile management and monitoring and inspection to help reduce risk and contribute to ESG requirements. But like everything, with the advancement of this type of technology, more and more varied and sophisticated options are becoming available. Carbonics is one of Australia's leading drone companies. Its cutting-edge Uncrewed Aerial Systems, or UAS, are designed for precise long-range data capture at scale, and they're increasingly being used for tasks traditionally done by helicopters, eliminating pilot risk and drastically reducing the carbon footprint involved. Carbonics is currently flying missions with a number of WA-based companies, and founder Dario Valenza joins me now. Welcome, Dario. It's great to have you on the podcast. Great to be here. Daria, can you tell us more about Carbonix's advanced uncrewed aerial systems and how they are revolutionising traditional tasks done by helicopters? Yeah, so the unique capability we have is to carry significant weight uh, for a long period of time or over long distances. So the main point of difference, I guess, is secret source with our airframes uh, is the ability to carry a sophisticated uh, scanning LIDAR, for example. Uh, so LIDAR is a uh, a means of uh, creating a, a point cloud 3D model of, of the terrain uh, combined with uh, an RGB camera, so a high-resolution photographic camera. Um, so the total weight of that payload is some, something around 5 kilos. Uh, we can keep that in the air for 8 hours. And we combine that with uh, vertical takeoff and landing, uh, which makes uh, launch and retrieval very practical. Okay, that's obviously very beneficial for WA in particular, given it's vast terrain. It's a huge state. What challenges and opportunities does that provide for for Carbonix's drones? Uh, it actually fits us really well. Um, <laughs> having large areas to cover is is precisely where we come into our own. Um, when you think about drones, um, obviously it's a very generic term, and there's a there's a big range of of aircraft that come under that uh, banner. Uh, everything from the little multi-rotors that you might be familiar uh, in the hobby world or in photography uh, to the big military stuff that's basically a full-size aircraft without a pilot. Uh, we sit somewhere in the middle where we, we're overlapping and um, uh, effectively replacing uh, helicopters and small fixed-wing uh, crewed aircraft. Uh, now, because we're not carrying a human, uh, we're saving easily a few hundred kilos of seats, controls, life support, uh, all the stuff that a human needs, we don't carry that. So we can be a lot more efficient um, at, at carrying payload and keeping in the air for longer, uh, which means we can cover large distances. Okay, so what specific industries or sectors have shown the most interest in adopting Carbonix's UAS technology and why? Uh, so the the system is relatively agnostic in, in the sense that we can carry different payloads and there are different industries that we can service and different mission profiles that we can fulfill. Uh, now, as a business, we're very consciously focused on linear infrastructure and mining uh, for a number of reasons, uh, mainly because uh, there's an immediate need. There's a market there where uh, 
money is currently being spent on helicopters and, and we think we can do that more efficiently, certainly, and, and more safely. Um, they, they tend to be in fairly remote areas, so um, it's a little bit easier to gain um, the, the initial permits to fly over a remote area rather than, say, a city or a densely populated area. Um, and they tend to, uh, the customer tends to be fleet buyers. So, uh, you know, a power network or a mine uh, will have a need for more than one system and for a recurring model, uh, which is great for us as a business. Now, having said that, we have looked at uh, things like ISR, which we call intelligence surveillance reconnaissance in the security space. Um, and as I think we'll touch on a bit later, we've been doing a lot of good work with bushfire monitoring, prevention, and, and mapping. Okay, so what are the biggest advantages for resource companies when it comes to using drones? Uh, it's really having frequent, accurate information uh, economically. So the, the, the biggest thing is being able to fly often uh, to get up-to-date information, so looking at changes over time at, at short intervals of time. Uh, then there's definitely a safety upside where you're, you're not putting people in the air and, and you can control that a lot better. So there's a safety element. And there's a carbon footprint reduction because our aircraft uses something like 2% of the fuel of a helicopter. Uh, so they're, they're the three main advantages, that the frequency of the data, the safety and the carbon footprint. Can you elaborate on the environmental benefits of using Carbonics as UAS, particularly in terms of reducing the carbon footprint compared to traditional methods? Basically, just putting something in the air that doesn't doesn't burn as much fuel. Um, so our, the, the outcome is, well, the, the job is the same. We're, we're trying to get a, a payload, so that, that's a scanner and a camera, uh, up over the target and, and keep it up there for long enough to, to cover the area that we need to cover. The traditional way to do that is to put that on uh, you know, multi-ton vehicle that has to accordingly burn enough fuel to generate the lift to keep itself in the air. Uh, we're putting it on a vehicle that weighs uh, maybe 60 kilos. Uh, so obviously the, the fuel burn is, again, along the line of about 2% of, of what the traditional incumbent solution is. Uh, so there's a massive saving there. Um, there's also an efficiency gain in, in terms of being able to fly lower and slower than, than what a helicopter can. And we can go into the aerodynamic reasons for that, but the short version is um, helicopters and, and traditional aircraft don't like flying low and slow because it's a low energy state. So if something goes wrong, you have limited time and altitude to recover. Uh, with the drones, it's all in proportion. It's a smaller aircraft. It can fly slower. It can fly lower. Um, and it has the, the vertical takeoff and landing system, which is a, a backup and a fail safe in, in case there's, a, there's an issue with the main propulsion. So can you provide some examples of uh, recent missions or projects that Carbonics has undertaken with WA-based companies? Absolutely. So with the mining, the, there are a few different use cases. Uh, and the interesting thing is that these are basically replacing um, what they're already doing. And, and whilst we're up in the air, sort of more auxiliary emissions tend to pop up and we tend to expand the scope. Uh, but the, the stuff we have been doing is uh, to do with managing stockpiles, so doing uh, 3, 3D modeling of uh, the volumes of earth, essentially, of, of different um, parts of the mine. Uh, so that then allows the, the planning to be a lot more precise because you know what's going on on the ground. Uh, you can update it very often and you can use that to plan uh, moving things around. Uh, then there's an operational element where we can fly over a, an active mine site and look at 
uh, the way vehicles are moving around and, and the, the general workflow and, and help optimize that. Um, and then there are asset inspections. So things like power lines, railways, pipes, uh, where we look for things like uh, sagging in the lines, uh, whether the power poles are subsiding or leaning over or deteriorating or rotting, uh, proximity of vegetation and, and other hazards that could start a fire. Uh, similarly with pipelines, looking for leaks, cracks, rust, uh, any instability in, in the earth around them. Um, and railways also looking for obstacles, uh, buckling in the rails, uh, any stability in the sleepers, things like that. Uh, and it's really about getting getting that imagery. So we generate a, a digital twin is sort of the trendy term, but basically it's a, a 3D model with photography draped over it to give a photorealistic texture. Uh, put that into any number of different post-processing systems that may use a human eye, may use AI. Um, and look for changes over time and, and really get a good understanding and monitoring of the way the system, so the infrastructure, the ground, that the vehicles uh, are all interacting. And, and that just allows uh, knowledge, which then enables good decisions to be made for interventions, whether it's maintenance or optimization, etc. Then after the mine is decommissioned, um, there's a whole rehab process. Uh, and our job really is to map it, so to, to take Again, aerial images and scans and look at how the vegetation is progressing, uh, whether the terrain has stabilized, identify any hazards, uh, really give that eye in the sky um, good, good information and situational awareness about what's happening on the ground. So um, what challenges did you encounter when initially introducing UAS technology to industries that traditionally rely on helicopters and how did you overcome them? Yeah, it's, it's a really interesting journey. So. I sort of like to say that the value proposition is really clear. So when we propose our way of doing things and, and we say we, we have this this thing that can replace your helicopters and uh, all of the advantages we just talked about, it's not a hard sell. Obviously, people are interested and, and if anything, uh, their expectations might be very high. Um, then the challenge becomes how do you introduce that into a business as usual cycle? So uh, everything from uh, do we need to uh, put new safety procedures in, in place and protocols, uh, all the um, regulatory compliance to do with having an operations manual uh, that CASA, the Civil Aviation Safety Authority, is is happy with, um, to training pilots, to how do we how do we plan the flights ahead of time and and find the right weather windows and things like that. So there's a very practical element, and there's a journey that the customer has to go on to understand the capabilities, the limitations, and how they're going to adopt and incorporate this technology. Um, and the way we normally overcome that is to take them on the journey. So to start relatively small, to say, uh, you know, we'll, we'll come over to your site, we'll do a flight, we'll generate some data, we'll pass it to you uh, for you to evaluate to, to the customer. Um, you can see how this thing works, uh, how we go about operations. Uh, and then there's a conversation around does the customer want to effectively own the operation, so become a drone operator, train pilots, uh, become basically independent where we only supply the tool and then they do the work, or do they want us to cover some or all of that? So uh, we're still working through with different customers where they land on that spectrum. Um, obviously, when they come from a helicopter inspection regime, 
uh, all they do usually is pick up the phone, call the helicopter company, and everything just happens, and they get the data. Uh, so one extreme is is that we, we can come and operate, or we can contract an operator, uh, get all the permits, get all, all the paperwork in order, and effectively just deliver the data as the product. Um, and then for various reasons, whether it's control or economics over the long term, uh, some customers want to be more involved, and we have to just find that that balance, that that position, and. Given that the whole process takes time, um, it also means that during that time, we can explore a optimizing the mission for them and b getting getting all the permits in place because there is still a lead time for beyond visual line of sight operations where you have to apply for a specific exemption and there is a process to get it and we've obtained a few of them now, um, but there's a there's a time sort of a lead time involved for CASA to process it. And so we like to use that time to get the customer up to speed. Okay, so how does safety factor into the design and operation of Carbonix's drones, especially given the elimination of pilot risk in these missions? Yeah, so that's as if founding value for, for us is, is really the safety. Uh, and that goes across everything from the design of the aircraft, all the testing that we've done, and, and we've spent the best part of five years now testing, testing, and testing. So. Everything from individual components to subsystems on the ground. We have something called an Iron Bird, which is basically a, a non-flying version of the aircraft that gets strapped down and just runs 24/7 through simulated missions, uh, with power going to all the subcomponents of the system. Uh, we monitor all that and record the performance to to look at how things deteriorate over time or what we call mean time between failure. So the, there's an engineering process uh, that is akin to a full-size aircraft. This is effectively ensuring airworthiness, not just of the design, but of the whole supply chain manufacturing process and uh, testing and evaluation that goes into signing off an aircraft before it goes into service. Um, so, so that's on the quality side. Then the design of the aircraft itself has a lot of redundancies built in. So we have uh, redundant control surfaces, as I mentioned before, we have a vertical takeoff system that can take over and effectively catch the aircraft if the, the main propulsion system fails. Um, various things like redundant comm links, redundant uh, uh, actuators for the control surfaces. All of that stuff is built in. And, and the great thing about that is that um, we can give CASA better assurances about the quality of the system and the likelihood of it uh, to, to work uh, because of all this engineering that we've done. Um, then once you've got an aircraft that works and, and all your paperwork, the, the, the next thing is to look at how you operate. Uh, and that's it could be as simple as keeping the area that you're surveying clear of people, uh, controlling the, the zone around where the aircraft takes off and lands, um, all this stuff around operating safely, thinking through the mission and knowing where your exit points are if something goes wrong, alternative landing spots, uh, you know, having spotters, uh, having... Uh, you know, fire extinguishing equipment on hand. All of that stuff is is part of safety. So it's, it's how you build the thing, how you operate it, redundant design, uh, lots of testing. Um, and and the interesting thing is that we we look at the safety of the system, and, and that's our job, and, and that's how Casa assesses it. It's how safe is the aircraft, and how safe is the operation. Uh, have you thought through what happens if X, Y, and Z goes wrong? Uh, what are the mitigations? Great, tick off you go. But really, the the bigger picture is the risk that we're taking off the table by flying a drone in the first place, uh, and that could be down to you know technicians driving around the country for thousands of kilometres and all the risks to do with road accidents and 
the various kinds of trouble they can get into doing that. If we send a drone over, that that takes all of that risk off the table. Now, you mentioned earlier uh, bushfire management. Now, you've been working with ANU on how drones can help improve bushfire management. Run us through that. Yeah, that, that's a, a fascinating project. I'm actually in Canberra right now because we had a, a demo flight yesterday where they, they sort of showed the progress that they'd made. It's, again, really about situational awareness. It's about knowing what's happening on the ground. So they're looking at things like after there's a lightning storm, what they call a dry lightning strike that might have hit somewhere in the bush, it might have hit a tree. That tree might smolder for days before it turns into a fire. If you know that that's happening, it's very easy to go and put that out. But if you don't know it's happening and it develops into a fire, it becomes a bigger problem. So there are various ways to do that and there are various technologies that, that all work together uh, to get that information to find out that that tree is about to explode. You can do it with satellites, uh, but they have limitations in terms of resolution because they're very far away. Uh, you're limited in the orbits. They, they can't really see through a cloud. Uh, so there are gaps there and, and there's room for something uh, closer to the ground to, to do a good job of that. It's not feasible to do it with crewed aircraft because of just the cost. There just aren't enough of them and uh, they, they have restrictions around flying at night and things like that. Uh, then on the ground you can have towers with various sensors and cameras and object recognition for smoke um, and, and that's also part of it and, and the, the ANU research covers that as well. Uh, the role for the drone, again, is really to, to put a camera in the air and cover these vast distances. And in the case of this specific mission, the camera is, is a live video uh, and it has a, an infrared component. So as the drone is flying, it's feeding a, a feed of infrared video and, and you can see very clearly when there's a hotspot because um, it stands out, it's literally white on a black background um, and makes it very easy to spot. Uh, anything unusual like a, a smoldering tree or a, a little grass fire, something that's too small to see by satellite that you wouldn't know is there, but if you fly over it with a drone, you'll spot it really easily. Um, so the idea is to have a fleet of these things scanning the countryside after lightning storms um, to, to alert for incipient fires. Uh, and then the broader picture as well is being able to monitor fuel loads. So just do scanning flights in, you know, at, at at scheduled intervals, uh, looking for you know how much dry timber is on the ground. Uh, what are, what's the moisture content? Uh, what does it look like if we do a backburn? Is it, is it going to get out of control? Um, so it's really again about scanning and situational awareness. It's about looking at what's on the ground and, and using that to make decisions. Um, then the last component, uh, which is a little bit more speculative at the moment because there are various barriers to it, is being able to give real-time situational awareness when there is a fire going on. And the difficulty with that, with that is that you might also have helicopters flying around at the same time carrying buckets and it has, it's really important to deconflict to make sure that the drones don't get in the way of the helicopters and, and there's some work to be done around how you maintain that separation and that situational awareness. Uh, but I'm confident eventually that that's a role for us as well, where we can uh, fly somewhere below the helicopters and, and give real-time video about where the fire front is and how it's behaving. Do you think there should be widespread adoption of drone technology for bushfire surveillance and management? Uh, I think it makes sense. Um, it, it's a useful tool. Um, it's it's available now. Uh, we're doing it. We have an operator in the US that was actually called in for the Canadian fires recently, and it was quite a successful mission. It is a way to get situational awareness safely. Uh, it's a way to 
scan for fuel to find incipient fires and put them out before they get out of control. It's absolutely feasible and to me it would make sense for it to be adopted. Okay. In what ways do you see the role of UAS technology continuing to expand and evolve in coming years, both in Australia and globally? Yeah. So this is the the fun part, I guess, the the, the tech vision and, and how it's going to scale. So the first thing you need is a, a platform that can carry your payload um, effectively. And, and that's a non-trivial challenge. That's in our case, uh, we've developed specific technology around the carbon fiber, around to, to make it light and efficient, uh, the shaping of the aircraft to make it aerodynamically efficient, uh, you know, the right propulsion, the right electronics and autopilot to keep it all under control and, and flying autonomously. Once you've got that basic platform, then you can build functionality and capability. You can make it more sophisticated. So you can add some level of decision-making in the aircraft where it can detect and avoid obstacles, it can change its flight path depending on how things on the ground change, and you start getting into a more autonomous capability where right now we basically pre-program the flight, we upload it to the aircraft, and then it sort of goes and executes it in an automatic fashion. Uh, It still has some amount of decision-making if something goes wrong, but as that autonomous capability grows, uh, there'll be more flexibility in, in how the aircraft operates. Um, and it will also be possible to have drone-to-drone communication where a fleet of aircraft can coordinate itself and, say, cover an area in, in, in an efficient pattern and, and move move each other around based on what every aircraft in the fleet is seeing. Uh, and then we get into this remote one-to-many paradigm where the operator is somewhere in a remote control center um, in an air-conditioned, off- air-conditioned office in the city, and you've got you know, 10, 20, 50 of these things uh, flying around, gathering useful information semi-autonomously without a human necessarily needing to be out in the field for each aircraft. And that's really where you start to get the scale and, and the economics as well of the one-to-many paradigm. Okay, we'll leave it there for today. Thanks so much for your time, Dario. I appreciate it. Okay, you're welcome. <laughs>